Thirdly, good. Thank you. Pastor unwittingly reminded me of a big thing that I forgot to say last night. Oh, let there be. And, and that is this, and we all have heard it, and that is that God resists the proud. We all know that, don't we? What, what we have to, what we're probably going to have to do is, is identify what that looks like and, and, and at all costs help each other to resist pride so God doesn't have to resist us. And, and if Jesus is right here by his spirit and, and I'm so caught up in me, so self-centered th- that the very God of the universe is next to me speaking and wanting to lead for my sake and others' sake and thus his sake, everyone wins, um, and, and yet I'm so focused on me and what I think and I want, what would you call that? Pride. Would you call it that? And what does God have to do? Resist. And if the majority, the body of our work of life, it's still about us, and then every once in a while in the foxhole, we cry out, God, 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 help, help. But he sees all the pride. Do you, do you understand? So, so we've got to come to terms as a people, and that's why I'm begging, and I love who have prayed for the unity. We need to be clear, crystal clear, and deeply committed to what we're crystal clear about and willing to do the hard work to make progress. And God will help us. And we'll, the cl- stronger we get in this, the more we'll realize how desperately we need help. And we'll cry out better and more for God to do what we cannot do and help us, but then somehow, some way, and theologically, you have to come to grips with this, but he did does give us directives. You know, if I said to my son, son, take out the garbage. He says, oh, daddy, help me, help me, help me. Uh, and I said, well, I have. I've given you direction and you have strength. I expect you to do what you can't, what you've been enabled to do. His divine power has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. We do know that. See? So, so, so if there's a horrendous tension at work here. So we're always dependent. But when God gives us direction, we have to understand that Faithful is he who calls who will do it. So we trust him while we're doing, using everything we've got. Paul says, I, 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 do, I, I, just, I use everything I have, everything he gives me. I, I just do it all to the best of my strength. See? So, so anyhow, well, welcome. I'm looking to see, Chad, are we going to, is anybody here? Um, <laughs> hello. I can, uh, well, we, we might have it memorized by now. I should have it. I don't have it memorized. But First John chapter 2 says, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands, right? Tonight we're going to talk about that and going to try to make that uh, very, very meaningful and doable, all right? Do we have anybody? Veronica, you, you working on it? Good. Thank you. Okay. So... And then it goes on and finally says, if anyone is in Christ, he must actually walk as Jesus walked. So just for a little bit of review, remember, I've basically told you, and let me review it because you may not have grasped it, that I've told you everything about how Jesus lived. Everything. You're thinking, that's a little arrogant to say. Talk about pride. (laughs) But if you want to know about Jesus, he prayed. In private. Sometimes in a small group, sometimes in synagogue, but the only focus was his father. And then, all day long, while with people in circumstances, he listened, he watched, but he was always aware of his father, and he listened, but didn't respond until he prayed. So that every conclusion he came to, every word he spoke, everything he did, that would pretty well cover his life, wouldn't you say? was the byproduct or the fruit of prayer, communication. And so I've told you everything about Jesus. And the, the goodness, the serving, the caring, the, the you know, the, the, the molten miracles, all that came out of what he did all day long. So we know everything about Jesus now. And then he says, come to me, learn of me, follow me. So... 
Now, tonight, I do want to tell you one more thing about Jesus, which, again, is fruit, not root, but it's still the byproduct of his communion with his Father. And here's the verse for tonight. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. I think I'm going to hurry through these if you don't mind. You've got this reference down, and hopefully you've... Well, that's cute. (laughs) But anyhow, if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, what will we do? Did Jesus make disciples? Mm-hmm. Well, that'll be easy. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Let's work on it. Let, let me just, just introduce it by saying, again, thank you for coming. Bless you. Look at this group. Uh, please don't be offended when I say this, but where'd Pastor go? Oh, okay, I can say anything I want then. Okay. <laughs> Just for fun, let me say this to you. This is way more than we need. Thank you for coming. But the reason I say that is we're so locked up in numbers. And we, we love everyone. But the issue is not the quantity. It's the quality. It's the quality. And I've been talking with you about quality up to this point entirely. But tonight I want to f- change gears, and I, I would like to talk to you tonight as parents of the church, mothers and fathers of the church, fair enough? Or another word would be as disciple makers, okay? <laughs> and you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, I'm not ready for that. Well, I'd kind of like to ask you, were you ready when you had your first child, parents? Are you ready yet? And they're grown and flown, and you're still not ready. And I never get more agreement than when I say that. So I suppose you think that you're going to be perfectly ready before you have spiritual children. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. When did you learn to grow up? When you became a parent. Never mind. I know I said chafing. How close is that to the truth? Yeah, okay, there we go. So anyhow, it had to kind of quit being all about you because you got the... Three o'clock, you got it. So, tonight I want to talk to you. You say, well, really, I'm not ready. Well, let let me just kind of prove maybe you are. How many of you have been born again, a genuine Christian, for at least three years or more? I didn't say anybody who didn't raise their hand. Well, then you're far more ready than Peter was. Because Jesus said to Peter, come to me, and Pete did, and three years later, after Pete had been hanging out with Jesus most of the time for three years, Jesus said, now I want you to go, and what I've been for you, I want you to do for others, right? But last night, or sometime this week, we talked as seriously as we could about the reality that Jesus said... It's better for you that I go away, because if I go away, then I'll send my spirit to be in you. Better that I be in you than next to you. Now, in the last three years, or five years, or 15, or 30, or 60 years, however long it's been that you've been a Christian, how much of the time has the Holy Spirit been in you? And that's better than having Jesus next to you, according to Jesus. And I, I kinda, he's a pretty decent theologian. I trust him. So... You've had full-on exposure. Unfortunately, in the church, this is a difficult thing. we've, We've talked about it, but we didn't practice it very much. So most of us didn't learn how to recognize and practice the presence. Whoever prayed that prayer, thank you. But in theory, you've had more exposure to Jesus if you've been a Christian three years or more than Peter had. Did you buy that? So here we go. Everybody say, good. I'm glad I came then. Never mind. Okay, here we go. Let, let, let's move along. So, you know, this is working funny tonight. That's all right. No, it's really working funny. It's, it's got an attitude. All right. So, here we go. All authority has been given to me. That deserves an hour. We don't get it. I am with you. We've been talking about that all this time. We're going to skip over that. That's the sandwich. That's the bread of the meat. All right? Front and end of what we call the Great Commission. Then Jesus makes this Great Commission, what we've come to call the Great Commission, Make disciples of all nations. You all have it memorized, probably. So there it is. Now, let me talk about that for a moment. When 
when Jesus said to Pete, make disciples of all nations, Pete didn't hear Jesus say, uh, get a PowerPoint, run around to a church, stay there four days, beat the tar out of them, and then run. <laughs> That's my ministry. Have you noticed? <laughs> he didn't hear that. Back then, make disciples meant something that it doesn't mean today. He didn't hear, buy the latest commentary on the book of Ezekiel. Call your friends together and have a study of Ezekiel for eight weeks. That's not what he heard. What he heard was this, and I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff. Your pastor, can he knows it. Back then, to make this, uh, I'm going to skip it. I, I, I want to talk about it. I'm going to skip it because it takes too much time. But here it is. Pete heard, in the context of the culture, which is very common, he heard, okay, Jesus, long ago, three years ago, out of thousands of people, selected me to be with him night and day like every guru does who wants to pass on his life, and he invites a few very chosen select people to come live with them, to pass on to them their way of thinking, their values, their priorities, their skills, so they not only can do it, but they have the heart of the master, the disciple. Peter heard Jesus saying to him, what I've done for you, disciple you, I now want you to do for others. And that means I want you to put your arms around someone like family and you adopt them and you bring them into your family. You bring them into your life and where you go, they go and what you know, you give to them and, what, and you, you let them watch you and you, you watch them and you work with them, you coach them, you train them until they're not only like you, but they can reproduce and do everything you can do because they're like you. That's what Pete heard. That's not what we hear today. Okay. So now I've just made it worse, haven't I? But we have to walk as Jesus did, right? Never again are we going to question that. All right, so here we go. So make the, well, let, let, me, let me go off on another tangent. My vision is not to see the world come to Jesus. My vision isn't to someday pastor a large church or have a big building or or have 5,000 grandkids. I'm well on my way. But anyhow, uh, my, none of that is my vision. My vision is quite simple. His name is Jesus. Be thou my vision. Fixing your eyes on Christ. Yes. So, my invisible, that which I cannot see with my natural eye, but what we mean by vision... That which I see in my mind, that which I see that moves me, that, that is what I'm after, that I give myself to with everything, I, my vision is a person. His name is Jesus. And wherever he is, wherever he is, whatever he's doing, my mission is to get there. Wherever he is, if he's thinking this, my mission is to have my thought be his thought. And you know what we call that? Work. <laughs> we call it, it's called repentance, changing my mind by the grace of God, but not the force of God, making it possible, but not inevitable. My, my mission is to be where Jesus is, to think what he thinks, to want what he wants, for the two to become one. That's my mission, to be like Jesus. He's my vision. My mission is to be like him. It's called to be holy as he is holy. And he will make that possible by the presence of his spirit, but again, not inevitable. He won't force it. Thank you for being more sensitive to him all day today. Now, after I've been hanging out with him a while, so I've kind of seen who he is and gotten a picture of him. And for me, he is pretty simple. All he does is pray. Talks to us every time I look at him, he's talking to the Father. Either in private or with people. That's all I see. And then he tells me things. But... But that's what I see. And so after I've kind of gotten down the idea of what it is to do what he does and do what he does, which, you all with me? Is this okay? Shorthand? All right. <clears throat> then he sees that my eyes are fixed on him, 
and I'm getting it. And he says, now, Hal, I love you, and you've been looking at me eye to eye, and you've been watching me with, fix my eyes on you. But I need to tell you something. You're not the only one I love. I've got seven billion others. And my eyes are fixed on them, too. And, and, and I, I, I'm willing, I trust you enough now that you're determined to keep your eyes fundamentally and essentially on me. I'm willing to let you crawl so much inside of me that I'll let you look through my eyes with me so that we together see the billions. And in your case, the seven that live in your family, the 13 you work with, and the two you go to church with, I'll, I'll let you join me I'll ask you to join me. I'll say, you're ready now to join me because you've got what you're essentially about. Now I want you to join me. So it's my mission is worldwide. Your mission is me, but your co-mission, the mission we share together, your mission with me, our co-mission is the world. And particularly, you're part of the world where I've placed you sovereignly, predetermined, determinate for you. So when I, th that's, when Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, not, that's not my mission. And many people, let me try to warn you a little bit, if you get too caught up in, in trying to make your co-mission your mission, or if you let your co-mission become your mission, you'll destroy it. Because you'll no longer realize that your mission is to be exactly like Jesus. And the moment your mission drifts from that to helping others, you'll drift from Jesus. And then you'll be trying to help them with what? The flesh. And that won't go anywhere. And that's what we've been doing in the church. Zealous for growth. This way, but not this way. This is work. I say, I made a study, 86.293782% approximately of making disciples of Jesus is being one. Because you are making disciples of someone. All the time. You can't, your church is making disciples. Pastor, don't ever worry about it. You can report. Our church made disciples all year long of whatever we are, wherever we are. So that's why, at all costs, our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Can we buy that? And of course, because... He loves the world. He is not willing that any should perish. He's after lost sheep. He loves the body. When we get that, then, then we'll partner with him and be with him in ministry at home and in the church and in the world. But the moment we make ministry our mission, we're beginning to lose it. Okay? Got it? So, here we go. These next parts of this great commission are called continuous Progressive participles. I'm going to give you about three of them. I have no idea what that means, but I read it, and I'm going with it. So this first one is this. Your Bible says go, but the Greek is a continuous progressive participle. Can you say it? Don't need to. It won't help you much. But, but it's a continuous progressive participle, but what it means is important. It doesn't mean you go one time to Africa. It doesn't mean you do one thing. It means as you are going. It means wherever you are. It means whatever you're doing, you're on commission with me. I'm leading you, you're following, and we have purpose, we have reason, we have zeal, because we don't have any boring days. See, you don't go to work to make money. You go to work to make disciples while you're making money. Right? We're weird. We don't walk the way mere mortals do. We march to the beat of a different drummer. We have a reason to go to work. It's not to make money, to have the wherewithal, to pay the rent, to pay for the food, to have the sleep, to have the food, to have the energy, to go to work. You got the idea. Make the money. We're not on the treadmill. We're following Jesus to the kingdom advancement to transform the world. We have a reason to live. We've been born again out of mediocrity and superficiality. We agree? See? So, so we, it's a really a cool deal. Anybody here work for Walmart? Almost every place someone's got someone working for Walmart. Okay, good. You guys don't have Walmart. Anybody here work for General Motors? Never mind. Let's say you work for General Motors. You don't work for General Motors. Forget it. You work for Jesus at General Motors, right? See, you got a reason to go to work. And here's a great deal. When you work for General Motors and you're, you're a missionary, 
co-missioning with Jesus, you're on mission. It's a really great deal because General Motors pays the missionary salary. Isn't that great? And General Motors builds the cotton-picking buildings and pays the rent and pays the custodians. General Motors pays people 40 hours a week to come be in your church. They pay them to come. You guys have to pay to come here. General Motors, isn't that great of General Motors? They're in great assistance helping God with his universal purposes. Isn't that good? You've got a reason to go to work. Even if you're flying a helicopter. I met someone new this week that I had never met before like that. <laughs> or you don't go home to eat dinner. Mm-mm. You go home to make disciples while you're eating dinner. Because as you're going, you're commissioned by the king. I mean, you don't, you, you, you don't work for the president of the United States. That's Tillywinks. That's in, you work with the king for the king. And if you keep working with the king and for him, and you're working for him, then you're on mission instead of commission. You'll make a mess of it. Got to work with the king. Be led. Keeping your eyes. So, so we don't go to ball games to watch ball games. I like ball games. I love ball games. I had to quit going to ball games to watch ball games a long time ago. <laughs> but I take someone with me, offer to buy the hot dogs, drive. They think we're watching the ball game, but I'm fishing. Right? Or we go fishing, but they think we're fishing for fish, but I'm fishing for men because I'm on commission. I, I, I'm really wanting us to understand. I hope... I'm not being too silly. Friends, every minute matters. We count. The world is desperately in need of co-missionaries who look and sound like Jesus. So, so we got we to gotta remember who we are and what we're about. So as you're going, make disciples of all nations. Okay, so wherever we are all the time, we're making disciples. How, does, how do we do that? Well, baptize them. Oh, really? That's good. So I go to Walmart. Get myself a big old bucket of water. I come up to a cashier named Patty, and I baptize her. Woo! How's that going to work? Sometimes the way we talk to lost people, it's a little bit like that, you know. Well, actually, that word doesn't mean today what it meant back then to us. Today, that word has been owned only by a small segment of the American population, and they're called Christians. And most Christians have a pergola, and I'd love to land on that for a little bit. It's a big word. It's important. But, but outsiders, if they know the word, they know it's a churchy word, and it doesn't mean much to them. Back then, that word meant a lot to everyone in the culture. It had a meeting, and, and we got, the, the Jews and the Christians took the cultural meaning and applied it to a particular, made a particular application of it. But let me tell you what it meant to people back there. I could tell you about ships going down at sea. I could tell you about, I, I, there's several illustrations. Here's my favorite one. Suppose that I lived in that culture back there, and, and suppose that I had a piece of cloth. I wanted this cloth that is white. I wanted to be purple. Okay, what I would do back then is I'd go down to the, the to the market, whatever they call it, and I'd buy a block of what they called purple dye, take it home, put it on the fire, melt it, and then I'd take my white tablecloth, my white towel that I wanted to become purple, and I would start immersing it. I would start dipping it. I would start baptizing it. And what I would be doing, and here's what it meant for them, I would be putting a foreign object or an object, let's put it this way, an object into a foreign or different culture that I wanted this object to become like the other culture that I was immersing it in. And I would keep dipping it. Now, I dip it a few times, and I pull it out, and oh, it would be kind of like my shirt. It would be kind of purple and white and blotchy and all sorts of lavender, but it it's not baptized, past tense, continuous progressive participle. I, I would dip it in. I'd keep baptizing it and baptizing it in this culture. And when finally 
This was entirely and completely purple, exactly like the color into which I was dipping it. Then and not until then would it be baptized past tense because now it would be exactly like the culture into which it was immersed. And that was a common meaning. So we do it today. We don't call it baptizing. Parents don't want their kids to go to the terrible neighbor's house because they don't want them being dipped in the wrong culture. They might get, them, they'd be, they don't want them to become like that other culture. I mean, it's not a difficult concept. So that's the word Jesus used, and that's what they heard. So as you're going, wherever you are, make disciples. How? Well, baptizing, not one time, but over and over and over, baptizing them in the name. Oh, it doesn't say in water. Huh. In the name. Now, don't everybody leave. I believe in baptism in water. Going to talk about it tomorrow. We'll have fun tomorrow night. Tonight's going to be terrible, but tomorrow night will be fun. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'm going to tell a story tomorrow night about baptizing a whole bunch of people. So everybody say he's okay. he's okay. All right, good. All right. So, but it doesn't say baptizing them in water. It says baptizing them in the name. Now, once again, the whole idea of name has changed in 2,000 years. Today, when parents name their kids, and I ask them all the time, why did you name your little child? child this and they usually tell me oh we like the sound of it or sometimes now they tell me it ha- very seldom but in christian circles it they're named it, the name means this and that's good many times they'll tell me well they're named after their grandfather or after me or something and and so debbie was named after a movie star fitting and 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 i was named after several family members i got a bunch of names so we just kind of name people willy-nilly. Back then, not so. It wasn't a law, but often, maybe normally, culturally, the idea was that when you named your child, you named them by their nature. That means you, the name was to be a description of the person so that if I knew your name before I knew you, I would know what you are like because your name described your character. See? And that's what. And, and there was another little thing that happened back then. If you changed a great deal, they might change your name. So Saul became. Uh huh. Yeah. Abram became. Sarai. Cephas. Peter. You are. Oh, I love this one. Have you ever heard this song? There's a new name. You haven't. Never mind. Oh, you have. Some some of you are really old. (laughs) And it's mine. I won't sing it, I promise. But you haven't heard that. There's a new name written down. Yeah, come on. All right, okay. Well, we used to sing it back when we really worshiped with hymns, you know. That wasn't a hymn anyhow. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. You didn't hear me say that. Okay, good. But you know what that means? In Acts 11, 26, up until then, over 250 times, the people who were being baptized were called disciples. As you're going, make baptizing them in water after they've been baptized, as we're talking about now, but baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then teach. But see, then in Acts 11, 26, something happened. Those crazy, those crazy disciples of Jesus, they were country bumpkins, but they were doing the stuff Jesus did, and they looked like Jesus, and they changed their name. They were called little Christ. They were first called Christians. Because they were so much like Jesus. Now that's changed over 2,000 years too, hasn't it? Do we need to rename ourselves? But in truth, every person who enters the kingdom of God is to be a disciple of Jesus and be transformed into his likeness. We should say, you're a disciple until you're so much like Jesus that we change your name to Christian. What do you think? Can we get that past the General Assembly? Why not? Let's go for it. <laughs> so, baptizing them in the name, 
Have you already figured out where I'm going? Uh, of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the character? What is the nature of the Father and the Son? If you've seen me, Jesus said you've seen the Father. So the Father's like Jesus. So Jesus, who's full of grace and truth. What is Jesus? He's kindness. He's goodness. He's, he's caring. So wherever we go, I'm glad you had this. I'm going to take this with me. Wherever you go, you don't put water in it. You go to Walmart and you just dump kindness all over folks and you dump gentleness and you dump forgiveness and integrity. You just be like Jesus. You just go on all day long, wherever you are, as you're going, you're just dumping Jesus all over. People like Jesus. They don't like his representative so much because we didn't represent him so well. Is it okay for me to say that? I'm not mad. I just, we got to get real about it, see? And so... All it takes, I say, step one for everyone in, in actually making disciples. Of course, the real trick is you got to hang out with Jesus and walk with him so you're becoming like him. So that when you go to Walmart and the cashier messes up and you get bumped a little bit, out comes patience and forgiveness and sensitivity and compassion and grace. You go home to be with your kids and your wife and it's not right. What happens? You get, and out comes Jesus. You just dump Jesus all over him all the time. Everybody loves to be loved. Everybody loves to be cared for. Everybody loves to be understood. That's Jesus. And what's our name? Christian. Why? We're country bumpkins. We didn't go to seminary. But they took note. They've been hanging out with Jesus. Got it? So, parents of the church, say, we can do this. See, so when we go to work, we're going to work not to make money. We're going to work to make disciples. How? Well, as we're going, we just dump Jesus all over everybody. And, and when, when the economy's a mess and we've got peace in the storm, and, and when everyone's panicked and fearful, we've got faith. And when they're slandering the boss, we say, well, yeah, let's turn. And we're a peacemaker. And they look at us and they say, what's with you? And we have an answer. We're prepared to give an answer for the reason for who we become. That makes what we do here desperately important. But if all you get is here on Sunday morning, you don't get a lot more than, if that's all you get, it's going to be pretty tough. To live this out. So we better equip and train you to really hang out with Jesus a lot. Kind of, you know, they've been with Jesus. Can we be with Jesus? Uh-huh. Why? Because he's with us. All we have to do is recognize his presence. Slow down. It's not me, it's we. Amen? This could get exciting. And, and when, if, if we'll quit trying to win people and start establishing, working on our vision and mission, then we sit with Jesus and he says, do you love me? Of course. He said, I want you to care for them. And we go out and start caring, just being with them and being who we are. They say, oh, what's with you? I, I, I know it's not that simple. And we say, well, you won't believe this, but there's not just one person in me. What? <laughs> Never mind. You don't understand we get to witness to them. That's not preach at them. We love them. We baptize them in Jesus' name. And then we earn the right to tell them our story. Once I was a mess. Not, I don't say it like you, but once I was a mess. And then he found me and I responded. He's changed my... Incidentally, I can tell you, I can scream this. Jesus has saved my life. I know it. He saved my life. And, and if I'd have followed him better... He did. I, I'd be more saved. You can be saved and more saved, you know. <laughs> so, does it make sense? This is the great commission. What's your mission? Who's your vision? See, what's your work? Get to Jesus. And then wherever you go, you're like him. And then... So I like the great commission. Been thinking about it a few years. So, teaching them. So, this is the part 
of the Great Commission that the church has done the best at. And now since I'm just being super critical, I'll still say, and we still ain't doing a very good job. You know why? It's not that pastors, teachers aren't very sincere and study hard and prepare well, and most of them do pretty well. Their, their message is pretty close. And none of us has all the... Anybody want to stand before Jesus and say, why should I let you in? And you say, I got my theology straight. There's a lot of people who kind of think they do because they tell everybody else theirs is wrong, you know. Well, anyhow. So, but, but they're, they're good guys and, and they, they teach... And, and guys like me, we have an extra responsibility. We're held to a higher account and we're pretty aware of that, see, because we read the Bible. But, but there's a problem. The way we do church, the way it's evolved, is we're not very good teachers. Now, there's nobody. Are there any kids here tonight? No, nobody in school. Anybody going to school here? Usually, there's a few high school kids or grade school kids. And I'll say, how would you like to go to school? And they always respond the same way, so I keep asking them. When they don't answer right, I won't ask a question. But I say to them, how would you like to go to school if you didn't ever have to take a test? They go, oh, and they love the idea. You see, a teacher, it's not, the issue is not what I say or even how I say it, though that matters. But the real objective is not for me to say the thing right or do it in such a way it's palatable to you. But the real deal is for you to get it. And if you ain't got it, I ain't a good teacher. And if I don't find out if you've got it, you learn that you don't have to get it. I had a woman come up to me once. <laughs> she, she came up to me. She said, Pastor, that was a great sermon. I said, well, thank you. She said, no, it was, I mean, it was really good. I said, well, thank you. I, I, got I said, Would, what, what, what was helpful for you? I mean, what, what, did, you, what did you get? And she said, uh, well, well, it was good. <laughs> I, I know you told me that three times, but I mean, what what?" What did you get? What was it? And she started muttering. I, I don't know what she was praying or what, but she, she turned around and walked off. She never, never again did she say a good sermon because she didn't sign up to be tested. She signed up to be fed like a baby and never to grow up and feed herself. But anyhow, I didn't say that to her. But, but in our culture, in the church, we don't ever test you. We don't know if you've got it or not. We just... Fire something at you for 50 minutes on Sunday morning or 20 if you're lucky like you are here. Uh, you know, whatever. We just fire away at you. And, and then we figure you got that. So next Sunday, we got to come up with something new so you'll be excited and come back to get fed something different. We don't want to bore you with same old routine stuff. So then we got to keep getting more and more. And, pretty good. and you realize it's not about being a doer. Or even here. It's about just getting all these things. But you don't really have to get them because nobody asks you if you've got it. And we've trained you. Hmm. I've got an idea, Pastor. You have more entrances per square foot to this sanctuary than any church in history. And I doubt that you can do this. But if you can, I want you to get an usher in front of every door Sunday morning. So no matter how they get in here, they get a piece of paper and a pencil. And then don't start with worship. And don't preach. Just say to everyone, okay, last week. I gave you this very excellent message. I'd like you this week to write down. It's called an oral examination. Just ask them to write out, see? And that will solve every one of your problems. They won't be back the next week. <laughs> because we didn't sign up to be tested. We don't care enough to find out if you've got it. We hope you got it. Maybe we expect you've got it, and then we wonder why you act the way you do when we didn't care enough to find out if you've got the theory, and that's just theory. See? And we're not called to be hearers even. What are we called to be? Doers. So that brings us to another point, teaching them to obey. Oh, that'll be easy. This is a great commission. This is not a hint or a suggestion. This Jesus, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Here's what you do. So parents of the church, we got, to, we, we got to baptize them so that by the spirit through the body, they are conceived. And then over time, they're born. 
And then we just leave them on the front door, right? No, now we got a baby. So now we got to keep caring for them and loving them and teaching them. But now we got to teach them to obey. See, the issue isn't teaching them, it's teaching them to obey. That means much of the preaching, good doctrine, Paul says, is behavior. Orthopraxy, not orthodoxy. We've made good doctrine orthodoxy. So we got to teach them to obey. <laughs> can, can you imagine? How, how well parents, well, never mind. I was going to ask, how are you doing with teaching your kids to obey? That's a job, and they can't run away. They're dependent on you. In the church, we try to get people to obey. <laughs> you, you, put, you lean on them a little bit, boop, they're gone. I'm talking to the parents tonight, right? How are we going to do that? Well, I've got an idea. Can I? Let me make a hint. As Jesus body, a disciple-making church, if we're going to teach them to obey, we're going to have to be full of grace and truth. If I had an extra hour, I'd talk to you about legalism and how it's killed us. But then if I had another hour, I'd tell you what we have done with grace. We've ruined it. We've got cheap grace. And grace that says to the kids, I love you, I love you. You're so good, you're so special when they're not. And grace that doesn't tell them to quit running out in front of this cars that's going to kill them. Grace that just doesn't tell them the truth. Grace without truth is not grace, nor is it love. And we have not made it grace and truth. We've made it grace or truth. And actually, it's neither if we don't marry them. So let me tell you a story. I don't like telling you this story because it takes too much time, but it gives you a break. You don't have to take notes for a while. You're all taking notes way ago. So uh, I was born on a Monday, and my mom, my, my point, I do have a point to the story. It's grace and truth, all right? So keep that in mind as I'm telling, kind of like the deal Sunday morning. You know, lots of talk here. So, so I was born on a Monday, and the next Sunday, my mom had me in church, and, and I have not missed since. Every, I'm, I'm serious. Every Sunday of my life, I've been in a formal worship service led by an ordained Chief, I mean, whatever they are, you know, big shot. So, so I, I, I've never missed church. Aren't you impressed? I mean, it's a big deal. And, and it's a credit to God's grace and my health. And I, I'm blessed, okay? But I've never missed. <laughs> Back then, church was rough. We're wimps today. We really are. Back then, we went to church about 8.30. I won't tell you all the, why. We went to church at 8.30. Didn't go home to 1 or 1.30. Usually brought someone home with us. They stayed until 4.30 until it was time for us to go back to church again. And we stayed late 8.30 or 9. We really did. We really, I mean, we, we really kept the Sabbath well. I mean, it was a killer. And so, so and, you know, we, so, and, and then we had church on Wednesday night, too, and I didn't miss those. I had to miss ball games. I had to go to church, and we, well, those are a whole other discussion. But anyhow, and, and I will just tell you this, I hated church. I hated it. There were several reasons, but the primary reason was this. My mom had this goofy idea. She thought I ought to behave. She thought I ought to be good for all those hours. And she had an idea of what good was. She was the lawmaker, and I had to stay within the law. If I stepped outside of the law, I was a lawbreaker, and she was the judge and the jury and the executioner. And I never could make it through Sunday without somehow boop, stepping outside of the law. And thus, consequences. Now, my mom had this idea. She thought that the Sabbath was Sunday, and she knew you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, so I would always break the law on the Sabbath, and she couldn't work on the Sabbath, so I didn't get executed until Monday morning. <laughs> it was crazy, and, and she wasn't very creative in her methods of executing. Uh, no matter how I stepped outside of her law, she judged me guilty. And gave me the sentence, and it happened on Monday morning, which means I laid awake every Sunday night, all night long. That explains quite a bit about me. Anyhow, my sister's a psychiatrist, and she said I ought to be, maybe I am. Anyhow, so, so I, and my mom, how, how she executed me, was she was kind of a Tiger Woods wannabe. My dad had a razor strap. Does anybody know what a razor strap is? It was longer than I was, and, and she made me bend over the bathtub, which with whatever I got up on Monday morning wearing, and I learned to be hot all night long, which is partly why I didn't sleep, 
because I had to have padding for Monday because I was the golf ball. She made me and she would tee me up and you'd go boom. And of course, every once in a while, the ball would slide. That means I would kind of duck. And so she'd slice me. So she got a mulligan. And I dare not move. So anyhow, it was terrible. I mean, I, I hated church. I, I just hated it. Now, you, you need to know, the church, the building we had back then was nothing like yours. I mean, you guys must be really rich here. I mean, the building we had, <laughs> we had so many holes in the ceiling, the rain and snow just came through and just came, and it turned everything brown, and you could see where all the holes were, and it was terrible. And I'd count the holes during the service to keep myself occupied so I didn't break the law. And, or, or, you know, we didn't have, look at your beautiful pews here. I mean, they're gorgeous. You know what we had? We had what people gave the church that they didn't want anymore. You always give God the stuff you don't want anymore, how that works. So, they, and we had all these chairs that people gave the church, and, and, and they, they were leather, but, but <laughs> the leather was all torn, and, and, and the wires were sticking out, and, and there was, oh, I thought that was funny. No, sorry. <laughs> sorry I'm so sorry. <laughs> and so, so the cotton was coming out, and when you go to sit down, you had to kind of adjust the wires to make sure you didn't sit on it wrong, and, and, and one more thing about your church. Well, you got carpet. We didn't have carpet. We just had old, ugly linoleum. It was brown and messed up, you know, water stains. It was messed. But you guys got kind of cheap here at one point. You, you just got a plain old flat floor. We had a slanted floor in our church. It was, it, you know, we put all our money there, I guess. But anyhow, there it was. Well, one Sunday morning, I was trying to figure out what can I do to keep from breaking the law this week? And I got a great idea. In retrospect, I've come to think maybe it wasn't from the Lord. But <clears throat> I thought it was. I thought it was a good idea. So I, I had this big marbles collection. I love marbles and what, how I got it. So I jammed my pockets with my marbles and then went to church. And then we were singing and went to Sunday school and singing. I liked the singing, but then the sermon started. Back then, the sermons were so long, so boring. They're not now. Back then, they were long and boring. <laughs> and so I, I was just dying. I, I, I'd, I'd try to keep my breath held so I could make the time go faster, and that didn't work, and, and I'd, I just did everything, I, and I get just about two seconds into the sermon, I get so hungry, I couldn't stand, I get fidgety, everything, everything happened bad during sermons, but then I remembered, I, I got my marbles, and so I love to organize, and so I reached and I pulled some marbles, and I had them in my hand, but I was a bit greedy, I wanted some more. Back then, we had a thing called hymnal. Do you know what a hymnal is? So, so I was going to get a hymnal to hold the marbles in, so, so I got one, and I got the marbles there and I, so I could get some more. And while I'm getting some more marbles, do you know what I did? <laughs> Have you ever heard a bunch of marbles hit a hard floor in the middle of the sermon? <laughs> it was worse than the a it was, it was so loud, you can't... And then, of course, the floor slammed. And then, no carpet. <laughs> I knew... I had about 18 hours of life. Execution <laughs> would change. It would not be the razor strap. It was over. I was meeting Jesus. No, I was going to hell because that was the worst thing. It was over. It, it, was, it was done. And, and I'm shaking. I'm just dying. I'm petrified. And I look up, and the woman that plays the organ, she's turned around, and she's staring at me <laughs> as if I'm a troublemaker. And I look over. The woman that plays the piano. She's staring at me. I look around. Everybody's staring at me. I'm just petrified, and I look up. The pastor, great big guy, bigger than any of you by a long shot. He's leaning over the pulpit. You know what a pulpit is? He's leaning over the pulpit, and he, he's doing this. He just, he just, he's just glaring at me. I'm sitting right here. He's just glaring at me. He could have kept on preaching. The marbles were done. He just... And I'm devastated. And all of a sudden, I feel something right here. I look over. It's a great big hand. And, and it's connected to a wrist and an arm, and I fall down. It's my dad. My dad put his arm around me. He's doing this. <laughs> He's doing something else. He puts his glasses down, and he looks up, and he's staring and glaring at the preacher. <laughs> and it is war. 
I was young, but I understood church fights. <laughs> and I could see the flames. It wasn't just, it was, it was war. And, and, and I know what my dad was thinking, because he told me lots of times. My, my dad was glaring at the preacher, and I know what he was thinking. He was thinking, this is my boy. And I love him. He's stupid. <laughs> Not very coordinated. But I'm going to stick with him. I'm going to stay with him. And I'll help him. And one day, you watch. You wait. He'll be okay. You know who my dad was? Jesus. Full of grace. You can't stop me from loving you. Doesn't matter if you drop your marbles. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how bad you are. You can't stop me because it's not about you. It's about my love for you. You can't stop me from loving you. But I love you so much that we will talk. And we're going to work on this. I'll coach you. I'll help you. You'll be okay someday. Truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Parents of the church, if we're going to teach them to obey, we have to be full of grace and truth. If you're full of grace, they'll tell you. They'll talk with you because you don't get to be with them all week, but they'll drop their marbles before and after Jesus thousands of times. How many of you have dropped your marbles so far today? Okay, we got a few people who are sensitive spirits. <laughs> yeah. We all come short. I mean, okay, let's just take one. What should we do? Rejoice in the Lord always. Never mind. Okay, you get the idea. Okay. We got a long ways to go. But our eyes are fixed. Now we turn around. And so we put our arms around the children of the church and the lost ones. We put our arms around them. And we love them. They can't stop us. Because it's not about them. It's about who we become. See, But we love them enough that they want help, and they tell us the truth. And then we help them with truth from God's perspective. And out of that, there's the environment whereby they learn to obey. Let, let me say how quickly. I'm afraid to look at my watch, so I'm just going to go quick here. I need to talk about the verse that we've been reading all week long, and then we'll be through. So here we are. We've got to teach them to obey, all right? So obedience is first about the heart. We have to understand that when we're working with others and when we're working with ourselves, and I'm going to talk to you as parents, but you as disciples of Jesus, we have to get it straight that man looks on the outward appearance, we all see each other's behavior, we see when they're good and we see when they drop their marbles, don't we? Who are we hardest on usually? We're a pretty sincere group, and so we see the marble dropping, but God sees that it kills us. God sees that we hate it. God sees we didn't want to. We didn't mean to. He sees that our will is set to trust him, but we still, we don't get it. See, not very, we haven't been trained yet. So, obedience is first a relationship word. Remember, obedience has to do with a speaker, a king, a sovereign, and a subject. A parent, a child. Obedience is a word that describes what's going on between a child and a parent. It's a relationship word. So the heart can be fully obedient. It can be determined to obey, and God sees that, and we as the parents of the church have to look beyond the fault and see the need. We have to see the heart, and God sees your heart. And he knows perfectly well. If your will is set to obey him, you come short, you mess up, but God knows. He's not devastated. He knows that if your heart is set to obey, all he has to do is whisper, and you'll be on it. And the things he calls us to, some of them are pretty easy. We can change them in a week. But a lot of the stuff he calls us to, it takes a lifetime. We just have to keep plugging at it. But he sees if we're still, if our spirit is willing Little King Will, see? So God sees the heart. 
It's a relationship word. He really does see the heart. He looked at the Pharisees, Jesus did, and he said, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of man. You set up your standards, you give your life to keeping them, and then you compare your performance with others who don't even know them, and you judge yourself, you justify yourself as better than them, and you think that earns you eternal life, and Jesus says, you don't even know me. You're law keepers, but your heart is far from me. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. He said, you know the scripture, but you don't know me. God sees the heart. Is that clear? I, it's, that's not complicated. Why, why, why do we struggle with it so much? But we do, but we ought to get it. And if we're going to help the children, we have to get it for ourselves. Okay? And, and let me say, the Pharisees thought they were in good shape. And Jesus said to them, God knows your heart. I, I, we were at three different churches for 10 years each. And after I'd been there, Quite a while, people will come to because I talk about the heart all the time. They figure that out. Well, it's because that's what God sees, see? And so uh, I'd talk about the heart, and people would come to say, well, Pastor, God knows my heart. And I'd say, you're not kidding. He really does. And as a man is, as a man thinks in his heart, see, the, the heart's everything. See? So I'm going to hurry here. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves in, you became obedient from the heart. Where does obedience start? In the heart. God says to us, he commands men everywhere to repent. What is repentance? It's a change of mind, a change of heart. See, to repent, see, turn from your own government to the government of God. So you became obedient from the, when you entered the kingdom, if you were taught right, you need to understand, not only did Jesus die for you, through the doors open, wide open, so that whosoever will could be saved, but he said, now, it's up to you to come back in through the open door, and if you have faith in me, you'll trust me, and if I give you direction, you won't say, I think I'll get a second opinion, namely mine. See, if you trust God, whatever he says, you're all over it. If you love him, Jesus says, you will obey him. And if he is God, king, ruler, lord, authority, when he who has all authority speaks, you can tell who's in the kingdom of God and who's not. The children of the kingdom say, yes, sir. They might be miserably immature and struggle and fumble and be forever, but in their heart, they're, they're unwilling to, to quit while they're getting the perspective and the skill to put the theory into practice. Everybody clear? Obedient from the heart. It's not optional. Obedience as a relationship word that inevitably results in a performance that's improved is not optional to be in the kingdom. How many, how many kings are there going to be in heaven? One. Why do we think we can retain kingship, lordship, and, and create, create hell in heaven? Because that's what created hell here. We clear? There's going to be one king in heaven. You, you don't get to go to heaven with an attitude, I'll do what I think. Everybody clear? And we have to get this straight and live it, and then we have to help the children of the church to understand that. Obedience is necessary as an attitude, as a relationship word toward the king, and when it's in place, when the will is set to obey, then the king, by his spirit, through his word, through his body, through whatever means, gets the message, and the obedient child with an obedient heart makes progress in having the word become activity. See? Pretty clear? So, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And the will of God is that we be rightly related to him. He died to make it possible, came to dwell in those who respond to transform us, but it begins, his will is that we put our faith in him, and we return from our independence and our arrogance, and that we submit to his government and come into his kingdom. It's a big deal to become a Christian. We haven't made it a big deal. We've made it believe a couple little things you heard and raise your hand and get baptized. It's not about ideas. It's about a person. So we preachers are very responsible for a lot of the struggle that's going on because we have cheapened the call. Everybody okay? Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. It's pretty hard to twist that. Is that pretty clear? 
But again, obedience, and you as the parents of the church, you've got to understand. I mean, I'm, I'm screaming this. I get how many nights with you? Four nights? I'm picking. This is one of the main things I talk about because for 40 years I saw a bunch of Christians who didn't get it, didn't understand it. They weren't going to be legalists. They were saved by grace, and therefore when I'd say, you need to forgive your husband, they said, well, no, he, he, and I said, it's not about him. You need to forgive him. And they said, well, well, yeah, but, and I said, no, forget that. Do you trust Jesus? Oh, yeah. Well, he tells you to forgive him. Yeah, but, no, no, forget. Who is Lord? You are Jesus. It's not about our behavior. It's about our relationship. And included in a saving relationship with God is an attitude, a commitment, a heart resolve that whatever the king says, I'm after it. Because he is Lord, I'm not. Just as you receive Christ as Lord, how do you receive Jesus? As he is, Lord. He's not good buddy now and later. If you want to come a theological idea, you make him Lord. He is Lord. And just as you received him as Lord, so walk in him. Aren't you glad you're saved by grace? My dad had grace for me. I was a miserable marble dropper. I ruined the whole church. It blew apart and never came back again. No, I didn't. But he knew that the kid actually was trying to not cause trouble. But he was a dumb kid. But he loved me. And we as parents of the church have to understand every kid that comes in is going to be loved. And God knows if we're ready to do that. To love them but love them enough to not let them stay dropping their marbles. We need to inform them, teach them love and truth, and then coach them from the idea of truth to making little steps of progress. That's called discipling them so they get the truth until they're actually experientially obedient. It's happening in their life because we're not called to be hearers but doers. But you have to hear and be committed to it before you become a doer. And often, there's a gap between the time you know and the time it comes into practice. We're changing a thousand bad habits, aren't we? So here's the one we worked on all week. We know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. Okay. So how I interpret this is I know that I've come to know you, Jesus, if my will is set to obey you because you see that and if my will is set to obey you, you know that you, all you have to do is speak and I'm going to take it from will and intent into performance. But you see a good heart that no longer wants to be king, no longer wants to have it my way. I trust you and I want it your way. Because my faith is in you, not me. Clear? Well, I got to quit. I have no idea what time it is. Don't even tell me, please. Don't tell me. He will punish those. This is the apostle of grace, Paul. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is about much, much, much more than forgiveness. The gospel is about a king. He is Lord. That's the good news. A king loves us. And we were rebels, but he died for us to throw open the doors so we could come back. If we would, quit being rebels. There won't be rebels in the kingdom of God. And right now our churches are loaded with rebels and they don't know it, they don't, but, but they've never settled it. Jesus is Lord, not me. Is that okay? See? Am I being too hard on us? I'm not talking to you. You know, I'm talking to the church down the street. You know that. Okay. So I'm going to quit right here. <clears throat> I hope every one of you tonight came in here resolved. Whatever Jesus says, the answer is yes, sir. I hope if that was the case, this strengthened that resolve. And, and, and there's more that I'd like to work on here, but, but I hope that you are resolved that, that because you're a parent in the church, you've got to be the real deal so that on the job, at work, at home, wherever you are, you, you're just going to be dumping Jesus all over people, and they're going to start responding and when they finally know enough about you to find out why it is you are, then you get to tell them how you came in a relationship with Jesus, but you're going to keep parenting and parenting them because you've got to teach them to obey the king of kings that their faith is in. They can't do it on their own very well. They need spiritual parents. And were you ready to adopt? Or were you ready to be a parent when you had your children? No. Are you ready now? Well, actually, if you're committed... Jesus is your vision, 
your mission, you, you, you got the basic ideas down, you can help others with the basic ideas. Being a Christian isn't supposed to be rocket science where you need a PhD. It's supposed to be about a relationship with God. And we've made it a bunch of stuff that's complicated it. Okay? So tonight, if you came in and maybe you didn't have a deep, deep, holy resolve to obey Jesus, no matter what, there's nothing in the world that can stop you from tonight making that resolve. There's sufficient grace for you to be able to say, Jesus, doesn't, my, I can't promise you what I'll do, but I can promise you I'm committed to doing what you say. Because my faith is in you, I love you, and you're God, and I'm not. So let's just bow our heads for a moment and talk to the Lord about whatever you need to say to him. Whether it's about whatever he said to you, talk back. About your resolve to follow him, to do what he says, or to help others, whatever it is. Just, just, just respond with everything you can. Amen.